We are live again then for another episode of The Marshall View. And this time it's a little bit of a different one with less of a Marshall View-esque um, theme to it and more of just a life story. So we've got Paul Boggy on today. How are you doing, Paul? Hello, Dan. Thanks for having me on, mate. No, thank you so much for coming on. You've got such an interesting story to tell. And uh, I, can't, I can't wait to get kind of stuck into it and hear about your life from, from heroin addict to hero, which is the name of your book which I'm halfway through at the moment. Really, really good. There we go, sorted. <laughs> Product placement at its best there. <laughs> so yeah, a heroin addict, and then into the Scots Guards, um, you know, defending kind of, or, or protecting Windsor Castle, Tower of London, uh, Buckingham Palace. What, what an amazing story and what an amazing transformation. Um, where did it all start for you, Paul? Um, well, I suppose, I suppose it started from the day 17 years ago when I broke my heroin, my heroin addiction. Yeah. Um, prior to that point, you know, I was an addict for seven years and I totally consumed my life to the point where I was suicidal at the end. And it's one of those things where through that whole duration of that addiction, I never had a future. Mm. I thought heroin was going to kill me. So um, I never really planned ahead. Yeah. Didn't really think I had a life, whether it be suicide or heroin, it was going to take my life. Like, I just didn't feel like I had a future. So I had no plans for the future. And then on my 14th attempt to break my heroin addiction, I had attended a course through Cyrenians about the power of the mind. It was nothing to do with addiction at all, mate. It was crazy. Um, it was this American psychologist guy on the screen telling me that the choices in life are mine okay. and mine alone. And it's not up to anybody else. You know, it's all from within me. And when I first done that course, I didn't believe that it was true. Um, and then on the 14th of May, 17 years ago, I woke up in the morning and I realised that what I had been taught for that week about the power of the mind was actually true. Yeah. And it blew, it blew my mind, literally. Um, I stood in the mirror, um, looked at myself in the mirror, I told myself that I'm never going to take heroin again for the rest of my life. And from that moment, it was an instant thing. I knew I was never touching heroin again. You know, I couldn't tell anyone because they would laugh or say, you've been here before, sure. we've heard it before. Yeah. Um, I knew within myself and it was a choice that I had made, that I had made instantly. So I went through the whole cold turkey. Um, but almost instantly, Dan, I began, I began um, dreaming about a future about things that I could potentially do in my life. Um, first thing was first. You know, we've got cold turkey to deal with. That was incoming, imminent, you know. So I had maybe a few weeks, you know, where things were really quite tough physically, but not so mentally. Yeah. And that's the, that's the crazy thing. 
Um, that's why I'm here talking to you now and hopefully talking to your, uh, not talking to, but your viewers listening to my story is because um, that, that's a powerful message that, you know, the mind can control so much everything. Yeah. And when you use it to the best of its ability, I can, you know, I got through the cold turkey so much easier. Prior 13 times I relaxed, didn't really know what I was doing, didn't know what was going on in my mind, everything was all over the place, negative, negative, doubt, these sorts of things. And then from that moment, I got through the cold turkey and then I started running cool. around Edinburgh. So I forest gumped it absolutely <laughs> everywhere all around the, um, the streets of Edinburgh and as time went on I became a lot fitter. Yeah. I didn't know back then but all, all I had done was switch my addiction yeah. from heroin to running. Sure. Whenever I felt like a little bit down or sad or angry running trainers on. Music in the ears and then I would just run for hours and hours. Yeah. Um, so that was sort of where I started to build my life back up um, and getting better in recovery. Then I joined a gym. So I didn't have much money. So I'd done a lot of jobs about the gym and then they allowed to give me a membership so I could go every day. Yeah. Um, I started doing a lot of bits of weights. I felt amazing about... Um, doing the weights, I felt good about myself, but physically my body was changing. Yeah. I was eight stone. The doctor had told me that I'm going to die from malnutrition long before heroin will ever kill me mm -hmm. because I wasn't eating at that point. And then, you know, I was such a skinny, skinny guy. And then I started going, I was eating better and I was um, protein shakes and I was doing all the, all the deadlifts and curls and stuff. And these muscles were popping out of my body everywhere. Yeah, I was like, you know, this is amazing. It was good for my mind, and it was also good for my physical body. Yeah. So, again, it, be, it turned out to be an addiction. Something wherever, whenever I felt down or sad, go to the gym yeah. on the treadmill, run to the gym, do some weights, then run home. You know, <laughs> and then there was a a big dance studio in that gym. It was a big fancy gym, and it was a big dance studio, and it had a boxing bag hanging down and I'd never really bothered so much about boxing and stuff um, but it was quiet so I thought right nobody's going to see me and I used to leave the mitts and stuff at the side of the bag yeah. so I went over and went into the box put the mitts on and stuff and then just have a wee look right nobody's watching me you know and just start punching the bag and stuff and I felt amazing I always had anger issues my whole life um, and I got such a release from pounding this heavy punching bag. And it just made me feel so much better, made me feel alive. Um, so I just used to do that every day. I used to run to the gym, do all my wakes, yeah. go, go into the boxing gym, put the music CD, blast the music, put the, put the, the, the gloves on, pound the bag, go for a swim, sauna and steam room, jacuzzi and all that good stuff come out feeling amazing. Yep. So 
I got a job again, which is something that I never thought I'd be able to do again after my addiction. Um, I got a job, um, and then something was just missing, I think, in my life. Um, things had moved on. My family were proud that I'd broke my addiction, and I'd turned it around. I was looking good and looking healthy. But for me, there was just something... I just felt something missing. So I initially looked at the fire brigade. Okay. I went and got the application form. It was like a yellow pages. And it just put me off. I thought, you know, this, I'm going to struggle with this. Um, then I looked at maybe the police force. I thought, you know, with my knowledge of drugs, mm-hmm. I could put it to good use and I could maybe do that. Yeah. Then I realised, well, probably not a good idea given the fact that most of the people I know in Edinburgh are, um, you know, mixing those circles, gangs and yeah. drugs and stuff. Have a conflict of interest though. Yeah, so I thought that's probably not going to be a very good idea. Yeah, yeah. So I was sitting in the staff canteen um, in the supermarket that I worked in, sitting flicking through the paper. Top right-hand corner, there was a little paragraph about join the army. Be the best. Yeah. Well, back then, Dan, um, or just prior to that, the age restriction for the army used to be 27. I'm approaching 30 at this point. Mm-hmm. So I seen that article and it must have planted a seed of some sort, but at the time I thought, well, I'm too old. I'd never thought about being a soldier. I'd never been anything I'd um, plan to be in my life or anything so anyway I was out in Edinburgh a few days later walking along High Street and Army Recruitment Office I just happened to be walking past I totally believe in destiny now um, but I was walking past and I'm, I'm thinking I'm too old so why I was why back then I was even thinking about walking in but something made me walk in spoke to the corporal at the desk he said, take a wee seat there, pal. So I've sat down. And then the pipe major in the Scots Guards was sitting in his office. And he shouted on me, bogey. Right, so because I stood up and I went through, he took one look at me. He said, how old are you? And I said, I'm almost 30, sir. He says, are you fit? I said, I go running every day. I'm in the gym. I do a little bit of boxing. He says, great, good stuff. Keep it up, I'll get you Scots Guards. Like that. And then it was like, he just told me that You're in. they can get me into the army. Yeah, yeah. Like, so it was, I remember run, running home. I think I was suited and booted that day with my fancy, <laughs> with my fancy shoes on. Um, I ran home and I went straight onto Google. Scots Guards to me were um, toy soldiers. Yeah. That's all they were. That's all they'd done. They just stood at, say, Buckingham Palace, and that was it. So when I got home and I went on Google on the laptop and I started researching Scots Guards, um, I was seeing them out fighting in Afghanistan and stuff, um, as well as doing the ceremonial duties at Windsor Castle and Buckingham Palace. And I was like, wow. Um, and they were front line. It was front frontline soldiers, so it was like, like, you know, <laughs> I'm doing it. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna, I'm, go, I'm gonna do it. 
Um, I knew people were going to laugh at me. I knew people were going to doubt me um, as well, you know, and it was like, I'm going to prove something to myself here. And I'm going to prove something to everybody that's ever doubted me. I'm going to go and do it. I'm going to try and be a soldier. So I went away, um, done a look at life course down in Cataract, loved it, came back, went for my medical. They stripped me down to my boxer shorts. They had me hopping around like a frog. Something to check your ankles or something. I don't know, right? But, um, <laughs> That's what they said. <laughs> yeah. So then he says, right, jump up on the bed. So I jump up on the bed. And then he says, have you, any pro- have you ever had any problems with alcohol or drugs? And bearing in mind, obviously, physically back then, you know, I was pretty ripped because of all the training I was doing. Um, and I think he must have been quite taken aback. I couldn't lie, Dan. You know, I, I just couldn't. Mm. I just said, yeah. I said, I was a heroin addict for seven years. Um, even when I say, I remember when I said it, my heart sank. So I beat myself. Why did you, why did you not lie? Yeah. yeah. Not, you know, just could have just lied there because, and I was like, right. So he says, he asked me the dates, how long I'd been clean. He went away and left me for about 15 minutes on my boxer shorts, sitting on that bed. And that was the longest 15 minutes of my life. Okay. I remember just sitting there, my heart sank, and I thought, you've, you, there's no chance now, you're not going to get in the army. Um, 15 minutes later, he came back in, <clears throat> just says, you've been, um, you've been clean long enough, and you're in very good physical health. Signed a bit of paper, enjoy basic training. And it was like, like I've done it now. Like, like this is it. It's real. Um, so I went back, told my parents, and told all my family. Were you ever tempted to lie and just go, no, I'm not. No, I've never had anything to do with drugs. No, because I think, I think that it's always going to come back to bite you later in life. You know, you can lie. When you lie, you've got to remember the lies that you've told and well, who you've it told them to. Doesn't it sometimes? Yeah. Yeah. So I just thought, like, just you know. It's, my, it's always been my instinct. It's got me in trouble a lot in life, Dan. Mm. Um, there's probably, should have been instances when I should have kept my mouth shut or lied. And I've been brutally honest with the truth and then, oh, sorry, I shouldn't have said that. And that's just been part of my nature. Um, so when they accepted me in, it was like a, I didn't think ahead. I wasn't thinking about ceremonial duties I wasn't thinking about Afghanistan I wasn't thinking about any of that sort of stuff I was thinking about basic training yeah what's basic training going to be like what's it going to entail or 18 19 year old whippersnappers are going to run rings around you so I freaked out a little bit I got all the weight on I got the boots on and I forest gumped it even more Mm -hmm. for the for the months leading up to basic training and I was super fit (laughs) How long a gap did you have between being accepted and then going to basic training? How long was the gap in between? It was about four, four or five months. It's a long time to think it over, isn't it? To kind of, yeah, a long time for it to play on your brain. Yeah, and it was like, obviously you have Google. So, you know, I was researching about um, about being a soldier and watching these videos on YouTube. And it was sort of, 
um, quite daunting the fact that, you know, a few years prior, I was sitting in my flat, contemplating suicide, thinking about um, my life on, you know, full of self-pity um, and sort of just beating, beating up on myself all the time. Thinking from there, I'm at, here I'm at this point Googling about this new career that I'm about to embark on at age of 30. Um, I went up to Edinburgh Castle, all the papers came, they took an interview. I was one of the oldest guardsmen to ever join the regiment. Yeah. Um, you know, and then it was just the basic training, six months, crazy, crazy um, physical and mental um, I'm not even sure what the word is there, <laughs> but you know, it's just it's just so physical and mental. Yeah. But physically, I had prepared. Yeah. More than anybody could, and it showed. I nearly almost got best PT out of probably what fifty or fifty or sixty men. Yeah. Um, or trainee soldiers, and I was second. I ended up second. So you know that in itself was an achievement. But mentally, yeah. mentally, I'd also prepared for this journey that I was putting myself on. I had learned that it's a choice. I'm choosing to be a soldier, mm-hmm. and you know, and it's uh, and it's up to me to make it work and make it happen. You know, was there a part of you that thought, "I've come through heroin addiction. I've gone through the cold turkey, which is probably one of the hardest things that people can physically." and mentally do with their lives, you know, coming off drugs and hard drugs as well. Was there a part of you that just thought, well, you know, this is mentally, this this should be fairly easy. You know, people do this every day, they sign up, this is a voluntary thing. You know, I, I should be able to, to kind of get through this okay? <clears throat> yeah, I, I never, I never once really, to be honest, I never doubted my, I never doubted my physical, being by then because I was extremely fit and I never doubted my mindset yeah. to make it so. It was more my ability to learn right. new things. Yeah. Um, and learn them quick, learn them quick. The soldiers have to. Yeah. Um, that was more where my anxiety lay. Um the mind side, the, the mind side of it, uh, I spoke to one of the sergeants when I was a trainee guardsman and he explained, look, Paul, this is what happens. We take these guys in, we break them down, and then we build them back up to be the guardsmen that we want them to be. And I was like, well, Sergeant, that sounds amazing. I says, but I really think you're going to have a bit of a hard time breaking me down mm-hmm. um, to build me back up. I've already broken myself down and I've already built myself back up. Um, I was I was always respectful to um, my peers in the army, and that was that was just standard for me. Um, Are they aware of your past as well, like yeah. your peers and like your superiors as well. They, they were all talking about it the the day that I arrived off the train. You know, so you imagine you've got sixty young guys, um, sideburns and big hairdos and stuff, yeah. suits and suits and ties, and then. Very quickly, I realised that word had travelled from the medical down to Catterick about this East Coaster from Edinburgh who used to be a smackhead and is now going to try and become a guardsman. So 
the officers and the sergeant majors and sergeants, they all knew. And because I didn't lie, it gave me that ability to be able to speak openly about it. So we would be on exercises at night time and it would be like, we'd have maybe half an hour downtime to get some scoff food. And then we'd be sitting in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of a forest. And they'd be like, come on then, bogey. What was it like on heroin back in the day? And I remember sitting telling the guys the stories and having everybody sort of tuned in yeah. and listening to my stories that I used to tell about taking heroin and other drugs and what it was like, what it felt like. And it used to be just keep firing questions at me and stuff. So um, it was nice because it meant I didn't have to hide away from who I am even today. You know, I am a recovering heroin addict and I always will be. Yeah. And to not f feel that shame or um, fear of having to hide who I am, which I obviously always tried to do, um, you know, it was good just to be, be able to open up and talk about it. So I got through basic training and <laughs> I mean, you could do, I could talk to you for hours and hours about basic training alone, but obviously for time purposes, yeah, I got through basic training. I had a great time. Um, I did myself, my expectations of myself, I surpassed it, those. Then I got sent down to London. I was there for nine months. Um, I stood outside Buckingham Palace. Yeah. Windsor Castle, Tower of London, and St. James's Palace. Yeah. And it's, I remember being on Buckingham Palace for the very first time getting posted out there. And what a, just a crazy, crazy experience that, it was like a dream. It wasn't real. Um, you know, I'd, I'd lived this life full of drugs and depression and stuff. And to then be standing outside there with my red tunic and my bare skin and my rifle, standing with my own thoughts, um, it was just like, wow, like, what have I done? Like, this is amazing. Like, this is absolutely amazing. Like, all these police officers that are standing all around me are all showing me this massive respect. Yeah. And it's like, what a turnaround that is. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> They're trying to hide for them. Um, so I absolutely loved it down in London. I got to do the keys at the Tower of London where you say, oh, who goes there? I've done that. There is a recording of it somewhere. Um, but I got, that was what a privilege to even do all these things. Um, then I got sent back to battalion to prepare for my first tour of Afghanistan. Yeah. It was a scary time in my life. Prior to that, just get through basic training, just get through ceremonial duties, yeah. never really thinking about what's going to happen. Um, then I got sent back to battalion to prepare pre-deployment training and I was crapping myself really bad. Mm -hmm. And my friends started to notice I was down. I'm not normally down. So they gave me a little bit of pep talk for a few nights, came up. They made me start to be excited about going to Afghanistan with them because we were just a little group of pals. Um, 
So then I started to work myself around and say, let's go, this is what the training's for. Let's go and do it. So um, I started my pre-deployment training. I used to go home to Edinburgh every weekend to visit the family. Travelling back from Edinburgh, I was in a serious car accident and I wasn't driving. I was in the front passenger seat. I broke my back and crushed my spine. And that, um, I suppose, I didn't know it back then. I wasn't allowing my mind to work that way back then. But that was, that, that moment, that was the end of my military career. Mm -hmm. I was no longer going to be able to soldier on. Yeah. And it wasn't through lack of trying. I stayed in the army for a further four years, um, battling against the injury. Um, I didn't go for, I didn't get the surgery. I got taken to a hospital. I was in there for a month. Excuse me. I refused the surgery. Um, that was why I had to stay in a month. And then when I went back to the army, I got all the rehabilitation courses that were available. I started to get physically better because I'd lost a lot of weight through the accident and stuff. I started to get physically better. I was at the army doctors. Please let me go to Afghanistan with my friends. And they were like, Paul, is that realistic? Mm. With your injuries? And I'd be like, probably not, but can I try? You know, I was just so eager. I just wanted to go and, and accomplish what, I, what I'd had my heart set on. Yeah, um, all that training for nothing. I was like, come on, please just let me go. So I had to go and do a physical test. I failed the physical test. Um, then I was at the doctors all the time. And then it was like medical discharge. Have you thought about that? My heart sank because I knew they weren't asking me okay. so much. I, yeah. It was, yeah, they were sort of like... You know, I probably could have prolonged it and stayed in any longer. But by that point, Dan, I was making cups of tea for everyone. Yeah. Bogey kind of pick up that box. It's too heavy. He's got a bad back. Bogey kind of do that. Get somebody else to do it. And what that was causing is my friends were my friends were then getting tasked to pick up the boxes that I'm supposed to be carrying. Yeah. That the boxes of ammo I kind of carry it, so they're doing it, and I could I could I could hear them moaning. Mm. Out of my, I was out of sight, but I could hear them moaning. This is Bogey's job. Why can Bogey know that? Yeah. And it was like, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm just no going to be able to do it. So I took the medical discharge, 2015. I came back to Edinburgh with a prescription for opiate medications. Right. So I very quickly became addicted to my tramadol, yeah. my cocodamol, my codeine, my gabapentins and pregabalins and all these drugs that the doctors had told me, you need to take these for the rest of your life mm -hmm. because of your injuries. I accepted it and I was heartbroken. I was absolutely heartbroken. And I've started to wallow in that self-pity again that I'd, that I'd wallowed in before. Mm -hmm. But somehow, this time, Dan, 
I was justifying it to myself in my mind that it was acceptable for me to wallow in my self-pity because it had been caused through nothing that I had done. The physical injuries that I've got are real. Um, so I didn't, I didn't think that I had a problem with becoming a drug addict again. So I just went on about my life, swallowing tablets every day. Yeah. Um, and then slowly but surely I was becoming depressed and I was becoming depressed because I was a drug addict again. I was becoming depressed because my army career had been cut short without me achieving what I needed to achieve, which was at least one tour. Um, So I was heartbroken, depressed, sad, angry. And the best way for me to combat those feelings and emotions, take more drugs. Mm -hmm. And that was unfortunately what I had become all my life, where I was taking more drugs, not just for my physical problems, but for my mental problems to block it out. Um, then, so I had years of that sort of turmoil. And then at the beginning of lockdown in March, my wife came in and she says, oh, see, there's going to be some some kind of national lockdown where you're not allowed to go out. And I was like, oh, that'll last for about two weeks. So mm-hmm. what am I going to do for two weeks? Yeah. So I took, I, I took the pen and... I sat up for three days and three nights writing. Put music on, sat and listened to Tom Walker, mostly. I'd never heard Tom Walker before, but the very first time I heard him, I sat and listened to him. Um, and then I, I, I wrote. I'd been writing for years as part of my, my recovery. So I got all that paper out and read all everything, wrote and put everything together. And then... I ended up with this. Yeah. I gave it to an editor, let the editor look over it, and we made it into a story of my life. Yeah. Um, and then a couple of things amazing happened. So I had another moment when I was writing the book. When I was writing about breaking my heroin addiction to put it in the book to let people read it. I was re-educating myself yeah. about the power of the mind. And I had, another, I had another light bulb moment in my life. And I changed forever that moment where I realised, wait a minute, what am I doing? Have you ever tried your life with cocodamol or tramadol or gabapentin or all these drugs that the doctors have, have you ever tried? No, I've not tried. I've never even tried. Yeah. So that was it instantly. Right? I'm, I'm going to try my hardest. Um, you know, I'm in a lot of physical pain every day. I'm going to try my hardest. Um, I'm over a year drug-free now. So I get that in there. So, Congratulations. Um, thank you. So that was it. That was that moment in, in, in my life again where it was, let's get off the drugs. Let's try your life and your back without the drugs. There was a song, Leave a Light On, by Tom Walker, was yeah. playing. Remember sitting listening to it. At the end of that song, I decided I'm going to donate all the profits in my book to homelessness in Scotland. Yeah. And that's what I'm going to do. And that's only going to be the start. Uh, 
these dreams again that were that, that were hitting my mind that were like you're you're possible, um, you could possibly go on. No, not even possibly. You can go and achieve what you want. Anything like that. The time when I broke the heroin addiction, it was the same. It was like just go and get it. What do you want? Right, write a book, publish it, sell it, give all the money to the homeless people. What else? Right. So I've, I've done a boxing a boxing event last year down in the Yorkshire Dales. Um, I've got many more charity events lined up to make money for homeless people. I am visiting I'm visiting prisons, speaking to inmates with the book. The book I've bought um, two dozen copies in my book, yeah. and they're, they're stocking it in the library. Yeah. Um, I've spoke to the drug minister of Scotland. I've, you know, I've had the, the books had a motion passed in the parliament saying congratulations to Paul Bogey on his endeavours and stuff. And it's all these dreams that I had back at the beginning of the lockdown that I'm pushing through and making a reality. Um, and that's all because the power of the mind. It's yeah. choice. You know, yeah, people are not all, not everybody's going to support you. Not everybody's going to want to get behind you, but it's not about those people. It's about us as individuals being determined enough to see the dream through, regardless of these things that are put in front of you. So that's, in a nutshell, Dan, I'm fully aware that when I talk, um, I go off on one way. Right? <laughs> so so I know that you're, you're realising that now. But um, yeah, in a nutshell, that's Paul Bogey and my life. Um, and that's generally what the book is about. I'm writing a second book at the moment. I'm currently writing it. I'm on chapter six. And that's just a continuation about social media, ups and downs in social media, yeah, yeah. Um, the, the prison visits, the people in social media that have supported me. I do a little, write a little bit say thank you and tell them what legends they are for getting behind me and supporting me and stuff. And just that, that's where I'm at now. I'm just, I'm making a documentary. Yeah. So, at the end of the month, I'll get this teaser for the documentary. Then I'll get funding from one of the big guns that want to help me share my story to the world. Then I'm going to make a feature film yeah. about my life. And I've already had amazing people like Leo Gregory and stuff offering to play me in my film. And I was like, come on, Leo. Like, I watched you in Green Street and Wild Bill and all that. And it's like, and he's messaging me on Instagram saying he'd be honoured to play me or play somebody on drugs or anything. I was like, this is amazing. So um, a feature film will come down the line. Sure. Um, right now, I'm just sort of, I'm just glad that a production company in Edinburgh have taken on my story. They believe in me and they believe that I've got a story that should be told, like you do, hence why you've got me on your show. Um, and I really do appreciate that, Dan. It's, podcasts are king for me. Yeah. You know, it's mainstream media, you may or may not be surprised to hear, want nothing to do with me, really. Um, I've been in the Sunday Times and I've been in the Sun, been in my local paper and stuff, but it's the title of the book, Heroin. Yeah. You, that's not a word you're allowed to say in society. Sure. 
it makes people run for the hills when you say that word. So I do believe that that's the reason why they've patched me so far. And I say so far because I will get there and, and the documentary will help in a massive way to um, inspire them, I suppose, yeah. to want to help me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then, you know, and then the world's moist. It's like, I don't, I don't have any idea where I'm going. I just know that I'm going to help loads of addicts along the way. I'm going to help loads of homeless people along the way. That makes me feel good. It makes me feel, my, my, it does my mental health, the world are good. So it's a win-win. I can help people through having a voice and openly and honestly telling about my heroin addiction and my turmoil. And by doing that, I'm helping myself as well. You know, it feels good to be helping people and not keeping it to myself. How? Because I get asked all the time, how did how are you 17 years of heroin? Is that, is that not impossible? Like, that, that, that shouldn't be possible. Or how did you do it? Paul, tell us. Mm-hmm. If I keep that information to myself, then I'm not going to feel very good about myself sure. if I take that to the grave. Yeah, yeah. With, the, with these insights that I've got about the mind, I suppose. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's the thing, Dan, is where people go to rehab centres and people go to... Um, certain lengths to to combat their addiction. The answer's in the mind for the addict. The answer is in the mind. For people, pockets of society that don't understand addiction, they believe that it's a physical problem. Mm. Cold turkey is hell on earth. And it's horrible for anybody to ever have to go through that. And it's necessary for people to go through that to come out the other side. Um, it's not a physical problem addiction, it's a mental one. And without acknowledging that to ourselves, we really are setting ourselves up for failure somewhere down the line where you're going to end up relapsing um, because you don't have the tools up there to be able to push through. So that's, that's where my heart's at. That's what I want to do in my life. I want to keep pushing this message as far and wide as I can. You know, I'm a, a, a podcast, you are podcast number 26, I believe. <laughs> Good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so I've done I've done a podcast in India, yeah. um, the Bronx, San Francisco, LA, all across yeah, the right. UK. Yeah, and it's like, it's amazing because there's no money involved. You know, I'm not having to pay you any money. You know, to, for you to help me to share my story, and neither have any of the rest of them. And your viewers that are listening to this, prior to listening to this, would have had would have had no idea who I was. Yeah. Hopefully, they now come and support me. Yeah. Um, you know, so th- this is why I'm massively grateful to you for giving me the chance to to come on and and <laughs> just throw it at you. You know. Um, no, no, it's all good, man. It's all good. What, what, what do you think made you kind of go down the drug route to begin with? And kind of what age were you at? Do you think it was the people that you were with? Was it the environment you were in? 
was it your own mental demons was it a little a combination of everything really yeah i would say probably a com combination of my mental demons things that happen um throughout your life from being a young kid any traumatic experiences as doesn't matter how severe they are they have an impact yeah on us as individuals all the way through to the day we die you know as much as you want to try and push some memories yeah. and things away that's part of who we are um i never really had that much trauma in my childhood but there was bits of bullying and there was bits of things that things that happened that didn't make me feel very good about myself um and I think I was in a gang from an early age in Edinburgh. And at the age of 18, heroin had flooded into the area and it caught everybody off guard, literally. Everybody started using heroin. All my friends, all these gang members that were my friends, they all started using heroin. And I was the last one out of a large group to not take it. Mm. Had a big argument with my mum one day. I was in, I was angry. I jumped in the car. I went away and got heroin with the rest of them. And then, whereas before they were offering it and I was saying, no, I don't want it. Why? If you were doing other drugs at that point as well, kind of in that gang, why, why were you so averse at that point to heroin? Because heroin kills. Mm. And you knew and that at that point as well, yeah. Yeah, my parents and at school and stuff. Um, the the thing was that was there was always pictures of needles and spoons when we when we were educated yeah. um, about heroin. And I always think, well, heroin kills, but all my friends are taking it, and there's no needles and there's no spoons. It's just tinfoil, mm. so it kind of be that dangerous. And I'm not, I'm not get addicted. I was quite naive to think, you know, I could just try it a few times and and then not then stop taking it. Mm. And I suppose I could have done it that back then. Do you think that's quite a common thought process for people? They think they'll just try it and then they'll be that person that doesn't get addicted to it and they'll be fine. But then suddenly they're in that spiral of, you know, they need the fix. 100%. Mm. And it's, it's one of those things where... Um, like for me, I was just na I was just naive, and it was like I was sick. Dan, the very first time I ever took heroin, like I went green, mm -hmm. and I remember feeling like I was physically going to vomit, and my pores opened up over my whole body mm -hmm. the very first time. I sweated in places that a human being shouldn't be even sweating. I felt it. I was like, "What is that?" I was soaking, absolutely drenched, and I was like, "I got out of the car." feeling sick lying down on the on, on the concrete and it was to this day i'll never know what made me get back up mm. and the following night when they're going to get heroin again and i would drive them up to the dealers and get it and i would take it again third night fourth night fifth night you know and it went on for about a month every night we could get it and then there was a drug bust and we weren't we were no longer able to able, able to source heroin. Right. And my friends were ill. 
they looked ill. I remember sitting in the driver's seat and turning around, looking at them. They're all moaning and moaning their sore stomachs and their eyes were watering and just looked horrible. Mm. And then it was like, like they, were, they were getting cranky at me. Obviously, I was a driver. They're like, Bogey, just go and drive there. Just drive there. And I was like, well, shut up. Like, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. And I was driving them around all these drug dealers. And there was police cars everywhere. And they're like, no, no, Bogey, turn the engine off, turn the engine off, turn the lights off. And we're all ducking down in the car and stuff. And then go. And it was just like, they were just cranky for the whole night. Then eventually, we got heroin. And they just changed. Instantly. Mm-hmm. Their whole demeanour just changed. They were happy. They were smiling. They were, everybody was crashing cigarettes. But it's normal. You never do. Like, oh, you want a cigarette? There you go, Paul. Bogey, mm-hmm. have a cigarette, mate. And I'm like, you never give me a cigarette, right? But I'll take it, you know? And then everybody's all happy and stuff, and then they take the drugs, you know? And then I realised that it was the drugs was what was, or the lack of drugs is what was yeah. making them so unwell. Um, for me, um, quite stupidly at that point, Dan, that should have been, a, that should have been my, my sign. I'm two men. I'm two weeks behind these guys. Yeah. Right. And if they're that ill now, and I didn't feel as ill as what they do, then now should be the time that I stop. If I'm going to stop, stop now, and I'm not going to suffer like what my friends are suffering. But I wanted to be part of the gang, of course, and I wanted to still have my friends, and sure. um, I continued for a probably about another few weeks or maybe a month, and then. There was another drug bust because they were quite common, commonplace back in the day. Sure. Another drug bust. All the heroin dealers went underground, sitting in the car, and it was my turn to experience that illness. Yeah. Um, and I knew that at that point, I'm in trouble now. I'm in big trouble. Um, you know, I just, I just sort of gave up on life. You know, and drugs was my saviour. Heroin was my best friend for the for those seven years, mostly. Um, whenever I was sad or angry or any negative things in my life, yeah. heroin can make me forget. Um, you know, and that's quite sad. I suppose looking back now that that drug was my best friend. It was my be-all and end-all to everything that was good in my life was getting that drug every day. Um, how are your friends and family at this point that that were kind of not in the drug scene, but that knew? Did they know you were going through what you were going through? Did they know you were addicted? Did you manage to try and keep like that life and your other life, or try and keep a semblance of normality? Or how did it work for you? So I was eighteen when I first started. Yeah. I was twenty-one when I came out, and I said to my brother on my twenty-first birthday party, my big brother and my big cousin. I confessed, I'm a heroin addict. And prior to that, I was working. <laughs> At points I was working full time. Mm-hmm. Whilst I was a heroin addict, I used to take heroin to my work and sit in the toilet smoking heroin. Yeah. Um, I've done quite a good job of hiding it. You know, it's a flu, it's hay fever, it's anything but what I was, what I actually was. Um, and then pity 
is what I seen in people's eyes. Mm. Friends and family. Yeah, shock as well. Um, but mostly pity. I just, my mum and dad, um, yeah, I think pity, Dan. I think that was the thing that sort of broke my heart the most was mm. that and I could see what I couldn't so much acknowledge what I was becoming physically or even mentally, but I could sort of see what drama and danger and horrible things it was causing for my family to have their son. Because I've, I've, my mum had four boys, I'm the second eldest. Right. I could sort of see what it was doing to my brothers because all my brother's friends, or oh, Paul's a smackhead now, and um, my, my family, my mum and dad's friends, oh, such a shame about Paul, isn't it? That stigma and, that was attached to it, yeah. Yeah, so everywhere I ever went in, that, in Edinburgh where I was known and anybody seen me, um, I would always just put my head down and kid on that I never seen them if they looked at me. I would kid on and walk the other way and just avoid, avoid, avoid. And it was because I was always pity in people's eyes and stuff. Um, and that was horrible. But heroin helped that. Yeah. You know, so I just, I used to just make me, whenever these sort of things happened, I just used to say, well, I'll feel better when I get heroin. Mm-hmm. I'll not care about my family so much. I'll not care about my friends. I'll not care about what society thinks of me. Um, I'll just take heroin and block it all out. Um, and that had just become my life mm-hmm. daily. You know, it was just that was just the way. Even if my friends weren't really my friends, I was a source of money or a source of transport, or yeah, they weren't true friends. And I know that now, but back then they were. I grew up with these guys, and we were in the gang, and you know, we done everything together. So I genuinely believed that they were my friends. But when we got deeper into the heroin addiction, when the heroin addiction started to take its toll on everybody's lives, and the whole the greed, the lies, the deceit, and all these sorts of things start coming into people's lives, then you know it's clear to see everybody's really out for themselves yeah. to get heroin, um, myself included, you know, and it's just a just a horrible situation for anyone anyone to be in um, but there is light at the end of the tunnel um, that's why I pushed myself into the public eye as I have um, and I'm not scared to do it I've been scared like a moment in my life I've been scared of what people will think about Paul Bogey about mm-hmm. the way that I look about the way that I talk about you know, and I've had I've also this anxiety and fear about myself. Um, and all that's irrelevant. Yeah. You know, it, what what matters is that if people can look at or read this book or and look at that picture and they are they are heroin addicts or cocaine out addicts or alcoholics or and they can and you know and they can say, wow, like if he can go and join the army after being a heroin addict, then there's hope for me yet. Yeah, what can I do? Yeah. What can I do in my life? Maybe I want to go and be a baker. I'd love to be or I'd love to be a hairdresser or whatever your dream is. You know, that 
it's important. It's an important message to to let people know that just because we're addicts right now doesn't mean that we have to stay addicts for the rest of our lives. Yeah. Um, don't just give up like what I done and think, well, I'm going to die, so I'll no bother caring. Um, you know, and I suppose that that's why I have to be determined and stubborn to keep pushing my message out on keep doing more podcasts and get a documentary get put back mainstream media into a corner and say yeah. and like I want a reason I need a reason why you're not helping me spread this help me spread the word yeah. you know I, if they're going to keep saying no I want a reason why they're just patching me right now there's no reply <laughs> you know so I, I need an excuse I need an excuse from them why they want and maybe it is the word heroin I don't know um, time will tell Dan I know you, I'm friends with you on Facebook so um, yeah, okay. I'm, <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure you'll see yeah. you'll, sh- you'll see it like everyone else when I find out but yeah, yeah just yeah, we'll keep in touch and uh, yeah <laughs> I look forward to seeing what you do but thank you so much Paul for talking to me for this it's been an inspiration and obviously the message that you're that you're saying of just keep pushing through and like you said, even if you are an addict, you're not always an addict. I don't think it defines you. And, you know, you're a prime example of that and ensuring you can get through it and do some amazing things with your life, no matter what you've done in the past. So completely hats off to you. And it's an amazing thing you're doing. So, yeah, well done, buddy. I made up. You've got my book, you know. <laughs> yeah, That's right. Yeah. I didn't know you. I didn't know you have it. I didn't know you were there. Go on, do my research. <laughs> Cool. Thank you so much, then, mate. Take care of yourself, and uh, yeah, we'll get you back on again at some point, and you can give us an update about what you've been doing. And yeah, just take care, and yeah, as again, just well done for everything. Thank you very much, Dan. All right, you're welcome, bud.